So here I am with Katie Couric, I mean, <laughs> Whitney Miller, who is going to be the interviewer here for this full expose on the warrior poet Aubrey Marcus history bio, how I came to be, um, where I am now, the lessons learned. And uh, so it should be an interesting podcast, a little different than anything we've done before in that, um, you know, I'd gotten a lot of requests on, um, you know, to explain a little bit more about, you know, what my past is, where I came from, how I came to be, who I am, and, uh, and give people a little heads up about that. So, um, you know, we'll dig deep, go through some cobwebs and, uh, and figure out, uh, figure out uh, you know, a little bit more info on, uh, on everything, things hopefully I've forgotten, <laughs> some <laughs> things I've remembered, and, and see where it leads us. Perfect. Yeah, I'm excited. I think a lot of people are going to be pretty excited about this podcast, get to know you a little bit better. I hope so. <laughs> That's the idea. That's the idea. Well, all right, Katie. I mean, Whitney, where should we, uh, where should we begin here with this, uh, with this story? We'll take it from the very beginning when you were just a little young buck. Where'd you come from? What's your childhood like? When I was a wee chap. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, basically my mother was a professional tennis player and she had, um, traveled the world playing tennis and, uh, Ended up meeting my father, who was a commodities trader. Started off by uh, teaching him tennis out in Southern California. And um, they got together just for a brief while. Basically, the cosmos aligned <laughs> for them to create me and then uh, split by when I was about two. But always maintained kind of a close relationship with both. And, and really, the, the split that happened when I was two, it happened so young. Um, it really was a blessing as far as I look at it. Because then I got two more... Um, pretty influential and amazing step-parents that came in. And it also, my parents allowed me to see positive examples of loving relationships where if they would have tried to stick it out, um, you know, they were fighting a lot. Things were uh, more of a challenge. So I think one of the big responsibilities of a parent is not to stay together and give a single family unit and stick it out through the end, but it's to show a positive example about what a loving relationship can be. And so, you know, I applaud my parents for, um, for doing that, uh, for me, you know, I think that was a big, a big key step is I didn't see them fighting in a home, you know, all the time. Um, you know, they split up and, and got together with some great people they really loved and, and got to show me positive examples of that. Um, my grandmother was incredibly important in, uh, in my upbringing as well. Uh, that was my mother's mother and, um, she'd grown up through the great depression and, and lived through, you know, some quite hard times and uh, was an athlete herself. Set, I think she scored some ridiculous amount of points as a girls basketball player back <laughs> in Iowa, back when they used to wear skirts and the balls didn't bounce Did very they? well. Yeah, <laughs> they wore skirts when they played. And, uh, you know, she was she played center, I think, at like 5'8", <laughs> you know, back in the days. Um, but, you know, she was rolling a ball to me when I was... Uh, just a little tiny kid, you know, and I would, couldn't even sit, you know, sit up or kneel or anything. So she's rolling a ball back and forth and, um, you know, really started working on my hand-eye coordination and, and things that would help me in the athletic part of my life um, from a very kind of early age. And, uh, and it was really wise, too. You know, I'd stood up to some oil camp, oh, to the uh, oil companies in Long Beach that were uh, trying to, you know, drill in some protected wetlands and she you know was one of the few people to stand up in a court hearing and you know take the threats that they were saying like hey quiet down you know bonnie harder and she's like no fuck you <laughs> you know i'm not going to do that so i learned a bit about 
you know, strength and strength of character and strength of will from her and all my parents. All my parents were very willed uh, individuals. So, you know, really my story isn't one of those stories of, yeah, I had it tough when I was growing up. You know, I, I was very blessed from the start. And, um, you know, and some people will take that as a slight. And that's something that I've had to had to deal with is, you know, oh, you had it so easy and blah, blah, blah. My childhood was so much tougher. And true, yeah, maybe so. You know, a lot of people had a lot of tougher childhoods than I did. Um, but my, what I always say is it's not where you begin, it's where you finish. And, um, you know, there's challenges to every, to every aspect. Uh, fortunately, you know, I had three older stepbrothers who uh, made sure I didn't get too headstrong <laughs> and let me know actually where I stood in relation uh, to the rest of the people of the world uh, as far as from a physical standpoint, et cetera. So having that balance of some older brothers to kind of beat you up a little bit and keep you from getting too cocky, but as well as having, you know, the opportunities to really kind of do and explore what I, what I needed to explore and what I could explore, um, growing up, I think set me off on a very good foot from an early age, no doubt. Yeah, it definitely seems like it. Yeah. And then, so, all right. So when did things get, things get kind of interesting, I would say, um, things got pretty interesting, I guess, you know, around, well, first of all, I guess junior high, you know, you start to kind of grow up and figure some things out a little bit. Um, but that was still just kind of sorting things out, figuring out my place and, and all that. I was always, you know, from a really young age, I was always interested in, in, uh, in writing and writing has been a a passion of mine from the very get go. I remember, you know, my grandmother again, and by the way, my grandmother, I don't know, most people probably haven't seen, but since this is all about me anyways, I'll try to get this on camera. But I have a tattoo of her on my arm. Um, it's a very good portrait by an artist named Michael Norris. I don't know if you can see that very well. But anyway, she's one of the key, key figures in my life. But she would sit me on her lap, and we had an old-school typewriter, one of the ones you, you know, punch out the keys mm-hmm. and slide back and forth. And I would dictate stories to her from you know, two, three years old. And the stories were always you know, classical medieval romance stories you know fresh out of king arthur and the knights of the round table i don't know where i got those ideas planted in my head but it just seemed like from the very beginning that was something i was drawn to and um you know the knight would save the lady from perils and dangers and you know i would love dictating that and as soon as i learned how to write for myself i was you know i kept it up and would write stories and poems and i guess that was kind of unique i remember in this from the poetry side of things and uh i did a poetry reading at um like a fourth grade poetry reading (laughs) and everybody was reading shell silverstein and the judges were sixth graders and so the sixth graders were still liking the shell silverstein you know and i was i read a william blake poem at my i did a recited william blake poem just the tiger is probably the most famous william blake poem but nonetheless they looked at me like what the fuck are you doing (laughs) like what is this how does this make sense you know so, um, and I thought I did a pretty good job, but I got like, you know, didn't even come close to placing. And like, I remember, uh, I remember seeing like the, one of the poems that one started, I'm hot. <laughs> I think I'll have a lemonade and sit down in the shade. That's poetry. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and I'm saying, what the hammer, what the chain <laughs> in what furnace was thy brain? And be like, shut the fuck <laughs> up. <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, you know, I'd write even poems even from a young age, um, 
really. I, I was verbally, you know, I started speaking and, and writing uh, a lot quicker than a lot of people. I think uh, this, the legend is about my first words. Um, my mother used to say, other side, when she would change me breastfeeding from one teat to the other. <laughs> and so uh, the legend is my first words were at, you know, less than a year, somewhere between six and nine months. I barely had the next strength, but I popped off a, popped off a tit <laughs> and I said, other side. <laughs> I always had a pretty good appetite, which is something that's lasted with me uh, to this day. But um, yeah, verb, you know, on the verbal side of things, it was always, things always came easy. And math wasn't a problem, but it, it wasn't something that I found fun. And that carried on through all through, all through my schooling, even through college. I just didn't like doing things that I felt like somebody else could get the exact same answer quicker than me. I was like, mm -hmm. why the fuck do I need to do this? Like, I can call up, you know, Jerry, and Jerry can give me the answer even better than me, and it's going to be completely accurate, you know, so it's not something I need to devote my time to. Um, but it does help you think in a certain way, and I do appreciate that uh, to a large degree. Well, they do say if you like math, you are not a fan of English and vice versa for some reason. It's rare that you see experts in both, right? Right. Like you don't see, um, you know, high level, you know, <laughs> literary geniuses and high level math geniuses generally coinciding. Although it's possible. I mean, you look at someone like Leonardo da Vinci and uh, he kind of breaks the mold there. It's possible, <laughs> but it doesn't happen very often. No, no. I think you can name those individuals on a very short list. Um, I think because the type of devotion it takes to really kind of master any field um, is one aspect. And I think probably there's also just inherent strengths in our brain. You know, we tend to lean one way or another. I don't know too much about the left brain, right brain. I think that might just be kind of a colloquialism um, as they're finding that the brain is a lot more is a lot more intricate than a simple explanation like that. But um, but I think there is something to it, you know, just kind of a way we approach things. One thing I did like, though, was um, I took a lot of logic classes. And uh, that was this was in college, and I'm kind of jumping around a little bit. But um, I think logic is the ultimate foundation that you can kind of fall back on in any situation. I think it's the most important thing to learn. Um, and, you know, basically, you know, we've all been in these arguments that are, really confusing and frustrating because they get emotional but mm -hmm. if you really break it down to the base logic it can kind of remove all that to the to the very core and, and all of these kind of philosophical explorations just the way using that logical base i think is crucial you know i mean it you can prove things through logic using the if then statements you know if such and such then such and such you know and as long as the premises are accurate you know then the conclusions logically follow and, and that's been probably something, you know, that was instilled by my father. Um, it was just a strong, keen sense of logic. So I never approached any subject with a preconceived set of notions that didn't abide by my logic. Mm -hmm. Like, that was the key. So when, you know, I grew up, by the time I was in high school, um, I was off here to Texas to go to, uh, go to school, went to Westlake High School here in Texas. And... Um, by that point, you know, coming into Texas, there's a lot of Christians out here. And, you know, I was getting invited to these Christian ski trips, <laughs> and Christian groups all the time. And, um, you know, my, my family was more agnostic than anything. Um, you know, wasn't devout atheist by any means, you know, 
devoted atheists, not devout, but, or what were they practicing religious? But here, coming here, I was really exposed to some real deal, you know, Christians. And that was interesting because immediately, you know, it just didn't sit with my logic. I was like, this doesn't make a lot of sense. I think this is silly. So, you know, I remember at a ski trip I went to, um, you know, they have these big, you ski all day. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's sweet. And then they sit you down for the, <laughs> for the brainwashing part of it. And I just wasn't having any of it. You know, I was asking questions. They're like, well, you know, that's where faith comes in. It's like, no, no, wrong, wrong. Yeah, there's a time and a place for faith. But, um, you know, for me, it has to be, it has to logically make sense. And, um, and so, you know, since then, I've come to a lot of synthesis with some Christian belief. And, you know, I've kind of taken a bit of everything that I've learned on my own through my own journeys. But I've never just swallowed a wafer of faith and said, yeah, that's good. You know, that's cool. And anything I've done, you know, I mean, you can trust reliable sources to a certain degree to kind of lead you on a way, but it has to have that foundation in logic or experience or, um, or something before I'll, I'll give it any real credibility. And that's something that your parents taught you as you were growing up or did you learn that on your own? It was, it was definitely helpful. It was helped to be instilled in me by my, by my father, um, in particular and supported by the rest of my family. But, um, but it's something that I've, also taken to heart as well you know that's something that's been intrinsically a part of me that you know the logic has to be sound at the end. and when when things get difficult you know that's that's what I fall back on that's kind of the backbone of of you know of who I am is you know an intense desire to figure things out through logic um, and it doesn't mean you know and logic doesn't mean that it has to be um, scientifically proven, you know, I think you can get too lost on this. Well, that's not proven. I don't believe it. You know, it just has to logically make sense. The internal argument has to make sense, you know, for it to be, it could be anything from Bigfoot to ghosts to whatever, you know, I have to basically back that out and say, what are the logical reasons for this? You know, it's not like I need great evidence to at least open up the possibility. There has to be that logical base. So, if you ask what are the most important things to me, I'd say logic. And then um, an inherent sense of justice, I think, is also the key, a key aspect to me. And, and I don't know exactly where I developed that. Certainly my parents had a key aspect of it. But, um, I, and I think part of it, too, was I was never punished in a punitive sort of way. If I did something wrong, um, my father would explain to me, like, hey, you know, this is what you did. These are the consequences. These are the people that felt bad because of it. These are the, you know, animals, environment, et cetera, that was hurt because of this. This was your fault that you did this. And so by explaining the consequences of my actions, um, you know, my own guilt was the lash that, that punished me. You know, I was like, oh, shit. You know, like I remember one time I was throwing rocks in the neighbor's pool. You know, and instead of like getting a spanking, you know, as I was like, oh, I wonder if I can do it. You know, it was one of those things like, Mm -hmm. can I reach it? (laughs) Do I have the arm strength to do it? And I'm not really thinking about anything else. And they explained to me like, listen, you realize what has to happen there. Either, you know, the parent or whoever it is, I forget the name of the neighbors, either they're going to have to go wade in the pool and clean out all those rocks by hand, which is going to annoy them. They could be having a tough day. It's going to take time out of their schedule. They're not going to be able to, it's going to put them in a bad mood which is going to affect their whole family. 
you know, or they're going to have to pay somebody else to go do that. And it's just going to cost them money. And, you know, that's, that's the cost of what you've done selfishly. And I felt, you know, really bad. And they're like, now you got to go over there and apologize. And learning through that way, I think was key, you know, so in any, in anything that I do that somehow that played a piece, but I think maybe also I was born with it a little bit because, you know, sitting on my grandma's lap, telling stories about knights who set, who set basically enforced justice, you know, set the right, set the wrongs right. Um, was something that kind of kept me going and it still keeps me going now. So, you know, if you, if you have to boil down who I am at the very base of things, it's, um, logic and justice. Those are the two things that override all sentiments. Um, from anything from you know family to um, relationships to whatever those two things I hold you know more sacred than than any other vows that I take um, so I think that's that's kind of a key insight to to who I am and uh, and the way that I go about my philosophy is to keep those things in mind I think what motivates me is the injustice of the ignorance that's out there um, people afraid of things, things that can help them, uh, like the psychedelics, for example. Um, I've explored these with a keen sense of logic. How is this affecting me? How can this help me? How can this help other people? And if you really look at the logic without the fear and the hysteria and the propaganda and the actual effects and the results and the studies that are coming out, the case is overwhelming. But on the other side, you have these other tools that you know, churches have been using for thousands of years and other people, which is, you know, fear, guilt, propaganda, uh, misinformation. So I think that's one of the reasons why I've never had any issue with that. You know, I don't accept the, the morals and of society as a norm um, or the laws in particular if I find them unjust or if I find them uh, to be illogical. And if they're illogical, then they're unjust because if they're illogical, then they're punishing people um, unjustly you know there's there's no other way because every law has a punitive component and uh, so you know I think that's been one of my quests is to basically set you know set set out against injustice in a variety of different ways and use as my sword um, the tool of logic and I think that's kind of the key key aspect of of what I've done if you could get like everybody in a room that doesn't really agree with what you're saying, they don't understand, maybe they're just afraid of the unknown, what would you tell them? Well, I think you'd have to get, I think there's a, there's a kind of a systematic approach that you'd have to get. And I think um, we're talking everybody. So let's talk, let's say America. You know, everybody's a little too broad. Everybody has their own thing. But let's say America. Let's say um, the middle of America, you know, which has... Um, has some great, intelligent, awesome people and also has a lot of ignorance. Everywhere has ignorance. There's ignorance on, on both sides. But I guess it depends. You know what I mean? It depends on what the particular issues are. So like, um, you know, kind of a fearful Christian conservative, um, what I would tell them is a little bit different than what I would tell a, you know, more socialist-leaning, um, well-intentioned but illogical liberal, you know what I mean? So everybody has their kind of 
balance where they're, in my view, a little bit off balance and they're not in alignment with truth, logic and justice. Like somehow they're skewed a little bit. So if you consider like being in alignment in a straight line, you know, people are bulging out in different sections. So you'd have to push those sections back <laughs> in, you know, depending on what the issues were. So, you know, if you're in that, if you're in that fearful Christian kind of conservative um, approach, I think really you have to take them back to logic because that's the only way to get it back. It's like, okay, what are you afraid of? Why are you afraid of this? Okay, let's say it's marijuana, you know, what are your reasons for despising it, thinking it's illegal, thinking it's warranted and just to throw people in a cage where, you know, for smoking this herb that grows naturally, that, you know, what are, why, what are your reasons? You know, tell me how this is a just law. Tell me why you need to prevent them from doing that, that they can't make that decision for themselves. And they would have their answers. Well, what their answers would be ultimately would fail the test of logic. And if you sat down with them long enough and actually got them to rid themselves of all the hysteria and fear and actually say, hey, we're going to have a logical debate, you know, then I think you could start to start to push them back in place. But people are stubborn. You know, it's very difficult to move, to move people. I mean, it would take a huge effort. And at the end of the day, they could just choose to forget it because they don't want to change themselves that much. And that's one of the biggest challenges is... But ultimately, if you can get people to adopt the system of logic, then I think that's that's a big step. And on the other side, on the other side, too, you have to say, you know, what are the results of, you know, taxing people 50 percent, you know, and giving out all these programs, expanding big government? You know, what is actually happening here? You know, it's not your intentions that count. You know, yeah, your intentions are great. Great intentions. Good job with your intentions. You know, you want to help. But where are the logical results of what this is causing and why this is happening, you know, and really get them to kind of look at that and see it. And you just have to kind of push, push those sides in on, uh, on both sides. But that's a good question. I mean, um, and really, I think, you know, I think everybody, everybody listening to this podcast has, you know, an opportunity to talk to their friends and talk to their peers and talk to their people who are on the other side of what they think of as the truth. I mean, what Joe Rogan and all of his people associated have done is created like a kind of a hub where, you know, you can go back to get in touch with what I believe to be a large, heavy dose of truth, you know. And um, and from there, you know, hopefully, and there's other areas of truth. It's not like Joe's the only one doing this, but, you know, I'm, you know, I've been attracted to, to the orbit that he's kind of created and then kind of spun my own orbit around. But that's what's got to keep happening. You know, I mean, it's got to, we got to keep attracting planets and then those planets got to have, you know, got to have their own gravity and keep attracting other people until it expands and kind of spreads like one of those outbreak charts <laughs> you see, you see in the movies, you know, where you just get a little bit more information. Like I know for, I know for, for sure there are people that are going to be listening to this podcast that do not share my beliefs or Rogan's beliefs. And so hopefully, you know, by the end of it, you know, there'll be a little bit of a, a weakening in the, in the fortresses and the levees that are kind of holding up um, some of the ideals that I believe um, aren't really truly based on anything that is substantial or real or truthful. Um, 
so yeah, everybody has their own their own issues, and I think, but I think everything can be cured by you know, and I've said this word probably seven hundred times already, and I'll try and lay off it, but by bringing everything back in line with just real kind of fundamental, logical, empirical kind of analysis of what is what, without the fear, without the emotions, and without the the coloring of the religious kind of fervor that tends to um, tends to overwhelm people with these thoughts and fears and, you know, scary shit <laughs> that they right. think is going to happen to them if they do that, which is all just fucking nonsense. I mean, it has to be hard, though, to completely strip away your emotions as well when you're thinking solely logical. It's a challenge. It's a challenge, no doubt. Um, and it's a particularly a challenge in relationships. I mean, that's when that's when you get generally the most illogical, <laughs> you know. And uh, and so, you know, you'll be in an argument about something that's, you know, if you actually got logical, it would be over in a second. But there's so many emotions involved that it becomes a very convoluted and challenging issue. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a constant effort. And at the same time, you know, I've certainly learned that one of the one of the risks is is that you can be a little bit too out of touch with your you know being in the moment ex- just experiencing feeling the emotional balance i mean while logic is is incredibly important there's also something to be said for the non-logical sensations that you feel you know a kind of read you get off people a vibe you get off energy you get uh, transmitted between two people um and a kind of release of the mind. Uh, I think one of the biggest problems that I had, probably up until my aboga trip, was uh, way too much dominance of my mind. Um, it served me in a lot of served me in a lot of ways, but at the same time, it was a significant detriment in that I called the entity Mind Boy, and, and it was just this almost juvenile machine that was running in my brain that was didn't always have my best interest wasn't really my true self um it could do fancy things like analyze logic and do that which was vital but it overstepped its bounds too many times you know it created hypothetical scenarios that i knew intrinsically weren't true and Mm -hmm. made me fearful of them um it would sabotage certain aspects you know kind of what uh stephen pressfield calls resistance or calls the enemy in, in his latest book, um, Turning Pro, that comes from that comes from the mind, in my opinion. You know, the mind is not always in align with what our real true selves uh, want for ourselves. So that is a risk, and it is a caveat. You know, you have to strike the balance. Everything is truly about balance, um, but you have to hone those skills of logic, and you have to have a sense of justice, um, which is you know. What is the harm? What is the good? And just weigh it, weigh them on two hands, like the scales. You know, harm versus good. You want to maximize the good, minimize the harm. You know, and anything that's out of balance in that, like throwing someone in jail for smoking a joint, harm, fuck yes. You know, harms the economy, harms the person, uh, harm all kinds of harms. You know, good. Where's the good in that? You prevented somebody from getting the munchies, feeling good, laughing. <laughs> Like, what? Like, how is that out of the scale is so far out of balance, you know? But somehow it's allowed to propagate because they've, what they've done is on that side, they've piled on fears and 
fears and propaganda and misinformation and and concerns that just aren't real. They're phantom weights, you know. So the scale to these people looks skewed in one area, but really the weights that they put on that scale of justice were just ghosts. Mm -hmm. You know, there was nothing there. So I guess um, I've kind of botched my chronological (laughs) discussion of of where we've gone, but I think high school was kind of... uh, High school was kind of interesting. I was mostly focused on being an athlete when I was in high school. I mean, that was the key thing that I was focused on. And I think it's sports are, are crucial, you know, for any kid, male or female, because it puts you in pressure situations and requires you to dig deep, you know. And I think that is probably the most important thing you can fall back on is just knowing what you're made of when you're put to the test. And where else do you get that as a kid, you know? Not really too much. Your parents are paying the bills, you know? Things are pretty easy. Maybe you got a, you got your own job, but you're still living at your parents' house, so mm-hmm. it's mostly, you know, spending money, maybe a car payment. I mean, sure, some people had thrust. I was, uh, yo, bro, I was thrust into the fucking on my own at age seven, <laughs> and I was killing squirrels and cooking them on spits and whatever. I mean, so some cases are like that. I'm not saying that that didn't happen. But for the most part, you know, unless you are playing a sport you're just not going to be exposed to those kind of pressure situations where you have expectations of those around you i mean i remember playing basketball my first time i got brought up to varsity as a sophomore um and i was brought into the game basically to shoot a three-pointer and if i made it the first one i would get to play more of that game if i missed it i would sit right the fuck back down and go back (laughs) down to jv right and there's a couple thousand people in the stands it was a big year we had couple you know a soon-to-be nba player on our team and um <laughs> i remember you know just the amount of pressure that you feel at that point you know you just couldn't duplicate that in any other situation as a 15 16 year old kid you know and, and fortunately um for whatever reason you know i was able to come through in that and remember you know the ball swinging to my side and and nobody in the stands hardly knew who i was i was brought up for this game and i knew that every single thing was riding on that one shot and uh, was able to take the shot and make it, um, which then set me off to play, you know, uh, varsity for the rest of that year and, and have a, an experience playing basketball that I wouldn't have gotten um, any other time in my career. I mean, we were able to play in some national tournaments, play against some really top-ranked schools and players, um, had a top 25 nationwide ranking, and I wouldn't have been a part of that if, if that didn't happen. And uh, But the, the most important part of that was just the pressure that, that I was able to go through. Fortunately, it worked out well for me. But if it didn't, I would have to learn from that. You know, I'd have mm-hmm. to learn you know, how I could better prepare and handle that so that next time I was in that pressure situation, I could, I su- I could succeed. So that was, that was a huge part of what was going on in high school. I was fucking clueless with, with females, though. Like I was, I was terrible. And I think that is, that's a kind of interesting game when you're younger as well. And I think it's, you know, uh, was the subject of a lot of emotional angst and it continued till I was probably 21, 22. And, you know, part of, um, part of the problem with my kind of chivalrous attitude was I wasn't treating the girls the same way I would treat a buddy. You know what I mean? Like I, you know, I was always not, I was, I'm always going to be chivalrous and kind and, and a good guy. Like I can't be a bad guy. Like it's just not part of me, nor would I ever 
do that. But what my problem was is that I forgot that when I'm with my friends and I'm interesting, I'm cracking jokes, I'm busting their balls a little mm-hmm. bit, you know, I'm having fun. I'm not just looking at them and smiling like a goof, <laughs> you know, and that's, that, was, that was the problem. I remember going on some dates in college and I would just sit and just smile at them. What a weirdo. Wow, that sounds entertaining. <laughs> yeah, no. And I, I mean, and I, I would, but now when I was out with my buddies, I was, I was, you know, making fun of them and we were teasing each other. We were laughing. And, but, you know, I think I had this idea of just being, you know, I don't know, some, some whack idea in my head that, um, you know, I think ultimately it's not about playing games or, or being anything different, but you just got to basically, um, you know, I know we got a question on Twitter about this, and, and I think one of the biggest things I've learned is um, you got You can't change who you are, you know, to fit somebody else's, you, you know, to try and fit what you think they're gonna like. You know, act like they're one of your buddies, and a guy or a girl, you know, treat them like you would um, one of your buddies. Be yourself. Be fun. You know, um, and just keep. Keep your own swag, whatever your swag is. You know, you got to make sure you keep that intact. And yeah, we always have to be sweet too. Yeah, yeah. There's for a sure. there's a balance there. <laughs> you have to. Be sweet. We don't want to be one of the dudes yeah. all the time. That's true. That's true. I think that that's a good point. But you know, that comes later though. You can't you can't come out of the gate like that because I did that. You know, I came out of the gate just all smile. I would give flowers like right off the bat, you know, like <laughs> way early, you know what I mean? And, and there's a time and a place for all that. You know, I'm, you know, I love a great romantic gesture. I'm, I'm all for it. I mean, I write poetry for fucking God's sakes, you know what I mean? So, um, but don't, don't forget, I guess, I guess my only advice would be just, they're not, you know, don't treat anybody like a different species. You know, right. be good to all people, you know, be good to your, be good to your girl. Like you'd be good to your friends. Um, but you know, don't be afraid to have some laughs and enjoy it. Um, but you know, I think looking, so that was kind of a, but that was a big, that was a big kind of struggle for me. I mean, I never got, I never got a girl that I really wanted or liked until I was probably 21 or 22. I'd get the ones that I didn't really like. Why? Because I treated them like I would everybody else. Just cool, friendly, fun. Like, oh, hey, what's up? You know? <laughs> and whereas the girls I liked, I'd be like, hey. <laughs> you know, with a big smile. So What changed in you? What made you <laughs> <laughs> all of a sudden ju- realize? I think I just figured. I think it was actually. All right. So it was this one girl in particular I dated. And um, she was like, a, she was a sportscaster and, and uh, a variety of other things. And she's a great girl. Really cool. But for some reason... I just wasn't that into it. Like, I just wasn't that into it. And um, as I said, there's no rhyme or maybe great reason about it. But the fact that I wasn't that into it, she was like super into me. And I was like, whoa. It's funny how that works. Yeah. I was like, (laughs) whoa, how about that? And that's where I kind of learned like, hey, what what is how I'm treating this? How is how I'm treating this girl different? Well, I'm still being good. You know, I'm still being a, a good person. But... I'm just treating her like I would in any one of my other normal friends, you know, and and that's from there. And I think learning that that learning that was kind of a key for me in the relationships. And then from there, you know, I got ensnared in a 
I got ensnared in a relationship that was had some, you know, certainly toxic elements. And I think one of the key things you have to keep in mind is to be wary of um, relationships that prey on insecurities. You know, it's the moment that you feel a relationship exacerbating any kind of insecurity. I think that's when you got to get the fuck out, you know, on either side. I mean, or fix it immediately. Because insecurity is a poison that will kill any kind of situation. Um, and there was one relationship that was kind of preying on some of my insecurities, and it caused way unnecessary grief. You know, I remember um, it was just a back and forth, in and out of this relationship. But she had some hooks in, you know, into some deep insecurities of mine that I hadn't wasn't old enough to overcome. And... Um, you know, and it was a really kind of shitty situation that was able to do that. So I put up with so much more than I ever would have because I was trying to overcome something. I was trying to prove to her that I was a certain way and prove to myself more than prove to her that, you know, how she made me feel was wrong. Um, you know, I mean, she was, she was the kind of girl who, like, we would split up for a minute and she would be dating a professional linebacker for a pro football team in a second. I'm like, fuck! <laughs> you know, so I'd hit the weight room and I'd be like, oh, I couldn't be as big and bad as this guy. Yeah. You know? But that was silly. You know, silly. Like, okay, she wants to date, you know, the middle linebacker, good for her. You know, it's... But it's hard when you're when you're that young. And, and if you feel insecurities, um, that's going to be a disaster too because you're going to stifle who you're with and prevent them from being the person that they could be. Now, you also have to be wary of the games where one person is going to try and make you jealous, try and make you insecure, which is a, which is a sign of their own insecurity. You know, I mean, it's one thing, you know, there's a big difference, and you see it when you go out. There's a big difference of the girl in the relationship. Let's say there's a relationship. She goes out, she stands up on a table, and she just fucking dances. Why? Because she loves dancing, and she's feeling it. She likes the whole environment, you know, the spotlight, everything about it. And that's really what she's thinking. And to me, that's fucking awesome. I love that. But there's the other girl that you see who is, you know, standing up on the table, making eyes with some guys, you know, checking out their boyfriend. Hey, is he watching? Is he watching me do this? <laughs> and that's fucked up. You can't, you know, that's another thing where you start to see these kind of poisonous elements arise. So, um, you know, I think the key is, is just you, once you're in the relationship, kill that insecurity. You got to just kill it. You got to have that self-love, that self-confidence, that self-pride to never be in a situation where, where you find that. Um, so what, what do you think about all that? Do you think I'm, do you think I'm on the pace? What's the, what's the female perspective there for, uh, for the relationship talk? No, I think you're definitely on pace. Um, I've been in my fair share of relationships where insecurities completely ruined it, but you stay in there like you were saying, just because to, prove the other person wrong and yeah. um i think it's important to to remind yourself or to be able to tell when someone's playing games with you i think it's fairly easy too yeah i mean because they give off the signs right in front of your face and either yeah. you decide to ignore them or you realize what is happening and fix it or just get out yeah yeah i think that's right i mean i think people see things but when the hooks are in even if you see it 
You don't want to believe it. You stay. You stay. You make up rationalizations. You make up excuses. And you know you're wrong. <laughs> you sit there and <laughs> you, know, you know exactly what's going on. And you know you're wrong. Yeah. But you stay. Yeah. Until finally you grow some balls, I guess, and get out. <laughs> yeah. And that was, so as far as growing some balls and getting out, that was another good thing that my father taught me from early on. He said, son, you have a right to your own happiness. And that was you know, probably one of the most important things uh, for me to learn in any relationship is, you know, it's hard to break up a lot of times with somebody because you're worried about their feelings. Like, how are, how are they going to feel? You know, it's going to crush them. They're going to be so sad. So you stay in relationships that you shouldn't um, because you're worried about that. But at the fundamental core, you have a right to your own happiness. And I would even take it farther. I would say you have an obligation to your own happiness because if you're unhappy, then the resentment is going to start to build. And resentment is like a pool of tar in the ocean. You know, it's just going to stay there and maybe dissipate and it's going to kill the fucking fish. (laughs) I mean, everything that's good about, you know, it's just going to, it's going to blacken and darken Mm -hmm. with its ochre poison, you know? So, if you're not happy, that's what's going to build. And um, so it can't work. You know, it just can't work. You're not sparing anything. You're just dragging it out and making it worse uh, at the end of the day. So, you know, be kind, be sensitive, be reasonable. But at the end of the day, you have a right and an obligation uh, to pursue your own happiness. And I think, you know, as a cliff notes, I think those are the most important things to think about. You know, avoid insecurity. And I think honesty is a big one, too. You know, I think that's, um, it's difficult to be fully honest, you know, to go to 100%. Um, but it's very valuable when you do, because it's a huge stress relief. And, you know, I mean, carrying around some actions or some thoughts or some deeds, um, it's, it's tough. It's a burden. It's a backpack. You know, it's a weight that's constantly on you. And the more you can get rid of that, the better. Uh, it's challenging, though, because most people, you know, aren't cool with the fact, with facts about us as human beings. And they have insecurities and a variety of different things. I mean, and being honest isn't being insensitive. You know what I'm saying? But that's a whole different thing. You know, being like crude and, you know, like for the example, let's say a beautiful girl walks by and you're in a relationship and you're with your girl you know if you if you look at that girl and then just kind of you know look back and go back to your conversation um there in that situation um that's just human nature that's just straight up human nature so the person you're with should be like that's human nature he's a fucking primate you know his instincts are saying look a nubile female (laughs) You know, hark, here she approaches. Where is the alpha male defending her? Aha, there is none. You know, or if she's with one, it's like, hark, the alpha. Am I more alpha? You know, (laughs) like that is the instinctual, you know, backstory to what you're kind of seeing. And it plays out very quickly. But that's what our instincts are saying. And I think females oftentimes fail to recognize like, hey, he's got to deal with that. You know, that's something that's coming from a deep, deep place, you know, where he was dragging his knuckles and pounding his chest and you know all that dna is still inside of us but at the same time that guy who who oversteps his bounds and is so dominant in a relationship that he goes 
that girl's fucking hot, you know, like, and I've been in that situation, you know, where I've seen other people do that. And I'm like, no, that's not cool. That's just going to mash your girl down, you know, have her bottle up some more further insecurities about your situation. So whereas she should acknowledge that it's, you know, you noticed her because you're a primate and a man, you know, you should have the courtesy and the chivalry to just shut your fucking mouth about it and just go on and love your girl. And it's not a big deal. You know, so I think there's a kind of mutual give and take. And I think a lot of that is, is um, part of the, you know, part of being honest. You know, I think you need to find a partnership where you don't have to hide the stuff that makes you you. You know, you don't have to pretend that you never masturbate even when you're in a relationship. Like, cool, that's good. You know, like it happens. Every, you know, you got to take care of your needs every once in a while. You know, we're not we're not Dr. Phil here who's. <laughs> I had a great talk with Joe Rogan about Dr. Phil and Dr. He was saying he, he saw him many years ago and Dr. Phil was giving advice to this woman who had a husband who was watching pornography and, and masturbating and he said, uh, he said, well, beating is the same as cheating. <laughs> beating is the same as cheating. That when he's true. watching that pornography, <laughs> it's like he's in there in the room with another woman. <laughs> What the fuck are you talking about? You know what I mean? So that's crazy. And I think I think spreading those kind of beliefs is just toxic. You know, I mean, it's um, yeah, I think there's a, I think there are problems with pornography. You know, I work for I work for Fleshlight, which is a male sex toy company. So I was tangentially, um, you know, in that industry. Um, and there's there's a lot of issues and there's nothing less sexy about porn than actually when you get to know the porn stars and see it. I mean, it's it's completely unattractive. Like, you think the AVN show is cool? You know, AVN show is not cool. <laughs> I'd rather go to a fucking copy machine trade show than the <laughs> AVN show. It's fucking horrible. Like, people think, oh, that's awesome. There's porn stars everywhere. I'm going to go there. No, don't fucking go there. Like, it's terrible. It's the worst time in Vegas. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's... And, and I know most of the people listening to me aren't going to believe me when I say that. But, you know, if you experienced it a, a couple of times, you would you'd have the reaction. So I'm not exonerating pornography and saying pornography is great. It has its own issues. I think one of the main issues is it kind of saps your desire to go out and change your own circumstances. You know, I mean, if you're constantly fulfilling all your fantasies virtually, well, then you're going to have less energy, less zest, less zeal to go out and fulfill your fantasies in real life. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's bad. I think that's also, you know, I was I was big into the into the role playing games to a certain degree, not like some of the kids now. I mean, the games now are so immersive, but I played my Dragon Warrior and my Final Fantasy when I was growing up. And it creates this kind of virtual achievement world, a virtual fulfillment of of your goals, um, which is cool, which is fun. But taken too far, it's going to lessen your zest and zeal to improve your real life character, you know, to go out and to lift your weights, to improve your strength. You're like, oh, my fucking dragon shaman warrior knight lizard just got <laughs> plus three strength. You know, I was like, or you could do some kettlebells and get your fucking real self plus three strength, you know, and see how that works or read your book and get some more skills and some more intelligence. So uh, same with pornography, you know, you're fulfilling these, these crazy fantasies. Well, why don't you go out, be successful, work harder, work out more, become more interesting and go fucking live that, you know, go be that, you know, go be a rock star if you want to do that, go do it. So 
I think that's a major, major problem with it. But it's not like Dr. Phil where you're in there. <laughs> Baiting is the same as cheating. <laughs> um, but anyways, I know, uh, I know Dr. Phil has a certain uh, strange appeal to people, which, you know, someday perhaps I'll figure out. But I don't know about oh, that. Oh, Dr. Phil. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, so. All right, so I guess that um, we've kind of covered a, a bit in uh, a bit in high school, and and so I think some of my exposure to the Christian element, uh, I started to get kind of, uh, I started to see some of the negative effects of that. I started to see some good good kids, good friends who had really were just racked with guilt all the time. Um, oh, I made out with this girl at this party. I'm gonna get oh, it's so sinful. I'm gonna get punished. Blah, blah, blah. I was like, no, dude, it was, it was cool. You know, you guys are both cool and you had a little, you know, drunken fumble. Who gives a fuck? You know, like, why are you so upset? And so That's sad that they feel guilty yeah, about it. Yeah, totally. And I also had another situation where, um, you know, a girl who had an early boyfriend who took her virginity and then was like, oh my God, you're a whore. I can't believe you did this. This is such a sin. We're not even married. You're a whore. Blah, blah, blah. But he how, was involved in yeah, the act. Yeah, 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 yeah. So imagine how much that fucked this girl up. You know, she was like wrecked, you know, from that. Imagine the very first time you give your virginity to a man. Immediately he finishes. He comes, probably wasn't even good anyways. And he's like, oh my God, you're a fucking whore. I can't believe you tempted me to do this. Blah, 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 you fucking whore. Can you imagine that? You know, but that's what this kind of fear system creates. You know, and so I started to get bitter towards um, towards religion, and that kind of really culminated and peaked in college. Um, so I kind of, you know, I wrapped up my athletic career in high school, and um, you know, was doing some writing and stuff. But I really started to become philosophically more active when I got to college. I went to uh, University of Richmond, and which was a cool school, a good school off in uh, you know uh, Richmond, Virginia, um, kind of a small school. But, um, you know, was able to take some really good classes. And I focused when I got there on um, philosophy, classical civilization, and then did some economics and some English. And I'm glad I did. Um, the philosophy I really kind of focused on was uh, philosophy of religion. And that really gave a pretty good fundamental view of general, you know, what kind of formed my kind of religious backbone as far as what every other religion was doing, um, what parts of it I liked. And, and it was just, we were able to explore it with a real logical approach. You know, is there a God? You know, how do we know? What, what, what evidence is there on both sides? And some of this you never really fully figure out. There's arguments on both sides, but you're exploring it. You're looking at it from a logical standpoint. And then the other question is, is this God worthy of worship? You know, and what I found is, is that rarely in there was you know, was a report of a God from a monotheistic point of view that abided by what I thought was my sense of justice. You know, the Old Testament Jehovah was not just, you know, fuck that. I mean, he was punishing people for doing things that were inherently natural in their being with death and flooding the world and causing massive cataclysms. I mean, if you, if, the, if God was a person able to do that, we'd be like, this is a fucking tyrant. This is Lex Luthor. This is Superman's nemesis, you know? So, you know, in, in that aspect, that God was not worthy of worship, you know? And so, and there's a bunch of different ways to look at it. Um, 
you know, and that was a really kind of key element. But I was, I was still pretty seething. I was still pretty angry at that point. I wasn't maybe Christopher Hitchens angry, but if anybody, anybody's read that book, um, he wrote a book called God is Not Great. And you can just taste the bitterness in every page of that book. I mean, shit, even the title, God is Not Great. <laughs> yeah. um, that book is a little, a little intense. Uh, and this was before the days of Kindle. So when I was reading that book, I, I tried to bring it on a plane once and I didn't even have the courage to get it out of my bag <laughs> when I was finishing it. But some of the other good books, um, Bertrand Russell writes a good book, Why I'm Not a Christian. But the most, the be some of the best books are by actually um, a preacher named John Shelby Spong. And uh, he, writes, he writes some books. He wrote a book called Why Christianity Must Change or Die. And he approached it from a very logical standpoint and has kind of helped kind of push that in line. Um, but really for me, when I started to soften on the subject was um, when I started to explore some shamanic activities. And I wrote a blog about this called The Real Heaven and Hell. And, um, you know, I guess I'll start at the beginning now that we're on the topic of shamanism and we're, you know, kind of closing down to my... Uh, my guideline for an hour here. We may have to continue this podcast or run a little late, but, um, you know, my first shamanic experience, um, I went out and saw a shaman down in, uh, uh, down in New Mexico and trained in a lot of the traditional, uh, traditional ways, native American ways. And, um, brewed a tea and the tea consisted of, it was a uh, psilocybin mushroom tea. And I knew a little bit about what I was getting into, you know, but I didn't really know too much else about it. And I remember that first experience I had was probably one of the most significant experiences of my life, for sure. Well, what made you go and try it before we get into it? What was it? I think, you know, I think um, I'd had some, you know, some encouragement um, from my father. And he was just kind of getting, getting a little bit of experience in that himself. And he saw, started to see the benefit. Um, and I was always something of an adventurer myself, you know. And I did, you know, did my own research on, uh, at that point, um, you know, this was only probably 10 years ago. So, you know, the internets, the interwebs were live. And there was a good resource at arrowid.org, which has a bunch of trip reports and things. And so I kind of knew that it was going to be psilocybin, though I didn't know for sure. The shaman kind of has had her own own way of handling things. Read some reports, you know, talked to some people, and I actually had some buddies who had who had done it as well. Um, not too many though back then. That was it was more rare because I was you know more an athlete, and you know it just wasn't didn't have the broadest circle that I do now. Um, yeah, but that was pretty much it. It was just kind of adventurous spirit and uh, kind of an idea to learn more and explore and just kind of took it, took a chance, took a gamble and uh, was rewarded immensely. And that first experience, um, basically I remember taking it and within a couple hours, I remember uh, my spirit actually lifting from my body and hovering over myself and my, my breathing stopped, my flesh just completely melted away. I had absolutely no sensation in my body at all, zero. It was gone. 
you know, my body was invisible, dark, you know, completely sensationless, gone. And my consciousness was alone. And at that moment, I remember thinking so much more clearly than I ever had in my life. Everything was just crystal clear, sharp. And I remember looking back and reflecting on my body and thinking, holy shit, you know, these two things, while they're linked together, you know, they're just basically paper clipped together. You know, they're not the same thing. Um, the consciousness, the soul, if you will, is distinct from the body. So at that point, I realized that, you know, what I was experiencing, I hadn't, there was no book for it. There was no guide for it. You know, this was, yes, the soul exists, but, you know, every, everywhere else that talks about a soul packs in a bunch of other shit too. You know, like Christianity is happy to talk about the soul. But they also talk about you burning that soul in a bit of, you know, in some oil or getting gnawed on by demons or whatever nonsense it is. But at that point, that was a real relief because at that point, it liberated me from any fear of death. And I think that's one of the most overwhelming fears that we all have is a fear of dying. And at the point where you fully realize that your body is distinct, uh, your, your consciousness, your soul is distinct from your body, then um, there's nothing to fear about death. Death would just be a shame. It would mean that you'd have to start all over again. And, and I wasn't sure on the reincarnation thing, and I'm not necessarily completely sure now, although uh, the answers I got during my aboga experience were pretty pretty clear cut that yes, there are there is reincarnation. But w what I do know is that soul the soul exists. And where it goes, yeah, I'm not dead sure. A lot of this is just my best logical explanations. But what I'm sure of, because I experienced it, is the soul exists and it's distinct to the body. The body is just a vessel that allows us to experience the magic that you cannot experience in the non-physical. You know, you can't experience, you can't experience the pleasures of the sensations and the awes and the wonder. And you can only experience that in not only a physical life, but a transient physical life, a life that, you know, has an expiration. And I think that's the gift that we get with these beings, a chance to improve, a chance to grow, and a chance to experience the magic of life. Um, so, you know, no need to fear death because... Where you're going is a, another place that's as real. Maybe it's not physical, but it's real and it exists and your identity is intact. And uh, my inclination is that you do get to come back and, uh, and try again another time. Uh, but in order not to spoil it and uh, hasten your way home, you have to forget everything that you knew from the non-physical world. It's just the way it works. Uh, but you can start to kind of cheat the system a little bit by doing things like psychedelics and I think you're supposed to you know to a certain degree is just siphon a little bit more wisdom from the other side to help you in this life um, in a very recent experience I had I remember you know being close to crossing over to the other side and I couldn't cr cross the threshold but I remember feeling a sense of almost a little naughtiness like you know like I was exploring an area that is usually off limits to, to humans, you know, and, but that naughtiness came only from my own mind. It was almost like, Ooh, I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm over on the other side. Hey, <laughs> you know, and, uh, that sounded like I was getting, going gay on the other a side, bit, <laughs> <a little bit. laughs> but I was like, um, you know, basically like, you know, I was able to come real close and gather wisdom from that. But that's important, you know, because the traditions that have taught that are gone. So the only, 
not completely gone. They still exist. You know, there's still some unbroken traditions in the Amazon and in Peru and uh, some of the Indian indigenous cultures and some of the other spiritual traditions are still intact. But as from a general cultural perspective, that's gone. And it's up to us to kind of explore that and bring some of our wisdoms back. So that was a key experience. And then in a similar, in a repeat experience, I realized that when you cross over to the other side, um, that is, you basically look back on your life with the crystal clarity as to, and this might have actually been the same experience. I did a couple pretty recently, but this might have been the same one where I synthesized that, you know, at the point where your spirit is out of your body, you have perfect clarity on the life that you've lived. And if you've lived well, and if you've lived good, and if you've loved, and if you've experienced life to the best that you possibly can, sure, you've made some mistakes, but you've always done it you know, put your heart in the right place and everything you've done. Um, that's going to be a heaven of sorts. You're going to look back and smile at your life and be welcomed back to the, you know, to the spirit realm and prepare for another journey or hang out. I don't know what happens there, but it's going to be a heaven of sorts. But if you've lived wickedly and if you've done wrong and if you've used rationalizations to why you hit this girl or why you, you know, beat your children or why you did whatever, you know, cheated these people out of their money, um, you're going to look back on that and you're going to have no blinders and no shields from that guilt. It's going to be like a horror movie where they pin your eyes open and you have to look at every different consequence of every action that you've done and you're going to be in hell. Mm -hmm. you know, and and that's, that is a real hell. I mean, that's as, as painful as any Hieronymus Bosch painting um, of you know, hellfire and brimstone and demons because it's going to be that self-inflicted inescapable guilt. Um, but at a certain point, there will come forgiveness. And, and that's where I think, you know, when you've atoned, you know, basically felt, feel like you've, I don't know how it works, but I, I'm sure that at a certain point, this, you don't self-punish yourself forever. At a certain point, a forgiveness comes and you release yourself of your actions, acknowledging their failures and go on after a certain amount of pain. And so that's where I started to get a synthesis with some of the Christian beliefs. You know, there is a hell. There is a heaven. Uh, there is forgiveness to, at a certain level. But it's all, they got it just all backwards and all fucked up. Mm. But the fact that there was that much, you know, it kind of took the edge off. It took the Christopher Hitchens, you know, venom off of my attacks on Christianity. And I just think that it's just been misguided and misused for power purposes. Um, but so that was, you know, really powerful gifts, uh, early on that kind of led me on my path and, and having those initial early powerful results. Um, the next step was just, whoa, what else could I learn? You know, what do these other medicines have to teach me? Um, and that's what kind of set me off on this, the path of the, the warrior poet path where I'm exploring different psychedelics, learning the medicines I have. I also realized I had a pretty unique ability to remember everything that happened during my experience. Um, you know, even a lot of people, especially with the Iboga experience, like you read, you know, famous author and amazing man, Graham Hancock, you read his experience with Iboga and he was saying, you know, very difficult to quantify exactly what was happening. A lot of things were going on. I've never had that situation where things were complicated to elucidate. And I think that was maybe some part of my purpose is to, you know, be able to go over to the other side and maintain 
consciousness so that I can bring the wisdom back and explain it in a good way. And I think that's, you know, probably why a lot of the people are listening to this podcast now is um, because I've made an impact in, in the way that I've been able to relay the information um, from a confusing and, and foreign place and have it um, colorful and have it make some sense. So, and I think that'll continue to be, you know, part of my path is to find the wisdom from the other side, help to bring it back and, um, you know, help, help other people find it themselves. Because, you know, as I said, human beings are, are stubborn individuals. You know, you could listen to me. I could be in a room with somebody for, you know, a full week and we could talk everything out. And I, I'm pretty confident I could get to agreement at the end of the week. But they're like, you know what, Aubrey? I fucking agree with you. <laughs> like, enough, enough, enough. I really agree with you. And I'd be like, you sure? What else? What else? What else? <laughs> and I'd shut it down. I'd get to the logical root of it. And after a week, they'd be like, I, I totally agree with Aubrey. And then a week later, they'd be like, yeah, you know, you know, yeah, Aubrey had some good points. And then, you know, a month later, they're like, yeah, you know, I, I chatted with Aubrey. You know, he had some interesting things. And then six months later, they may be fully back to themselves again, you know, and just not, unless you really see it for yourself, you're not going to, it's not going to make an impact. And the shamans know that. Most of the good shamans aren't going to talk to you a lot. You know, they're just going to show you because they know that their talking is not going to do that much good. Um, so, you know, I think people do need to experience it for themselves. Now, obviously there's, there's caveats and there's warnings. There was recently, uh, the death of that, that kid, Kyle Nolan, um, who went down to Peru, went with a shaman and ended up having that shaman burying him and covering it up. Now, what happened in between, man, I mean, a lot of speculation there. Um, I do know that the shamans that I've spoken to have had you know, generations, countless generations spanning back hundreds and hundreds of years and have never had a death, never even had a permanent or any kind of serious injurious effect from the administration of ayahuasca. Um, So it's very curious. But they also, you know, know how to stress what they call the dieta, the diet. Uh, And they make sure that you aren't taking any other kind of pharmaceuticals, that you haven't had certain foods, um... The, the church of Santo Daime or uh, the EDV church, they don't, they're not even so big on the diet. The diet isn't even that dangerous. But if you are taking some kind of pharmaceutical uh, medication before ayahuasca, ayahuasca has a powerful MA, MAOI. And um, there could be an interaction there between especially an SSRI, like an antidepressant, and that MO, MAOI. could be highly dangerous. Um, so preparation and also knowing the shaman i knew i've heard stories of shamans who serving false brews you know brews of poisonous plants rather than ayahuasca that make you purge make you see things just from the fucking sheer poison of it uh, but aren't really ayahuasca they're cheaper easier to make and don't take the kind of effort of boiling these plants in proper preparation and doing the whole deal that could be an issue or you know could be a lightning strike everything could have been done right but the fact that the shaman tried to cover it up and there's some there's some real issues there and another thing that I'm confident on, you know, every time I've been released from a ceremony, you know, these shamans have looked at me and looked through me, like scanning me like an x-ray machine and making sure that I'm okay. And you can just tell that they can sense every aspect of it. And then they'll close the ceremony. The shamans, uh, the dragon maestro Orlando Chuandama, he closes the ceremony with either cinnamon or tobacco and he blows that on you and you just know that when he gives you that once over and that okay, that you're going to be fine. You're going to be okay. Yeah. Somehow something went wrong. Well, what about people that 
you know, maybe they don't have you to come to and ask about shamans. What resources do they have? How, how should they find out if it's safe or who they should go to? It's tough. It's tough. I think, I think um, you have to talk to some people who've been there. You know, get on the forums, get on the boards, talk to some people who've actually been to these shamans. Uh, if you can't do that, then you have to, you know, certainly you shouldn't go there alone. Step A, um, you know, and, and also, especially if you're a female, um, you know, definitely don't go down to these shamans alone. Uh, there's been some, you know, certain reports. Well, this is the first report of any death I've ever heard or anybody's ever heard. Um, there certainly has been some reports of shamans taking advantage of females who were going through the ceremonies uh, in a sexual way. And, and really, it's an interesting topic because, you know, these shamans come from a culture where they were basically the mini untouchable kings of their tribe. If they wanted to hook up with a girl, they just did, you know, and the girl was cool with it. So it doesn't justify what they're doing by any means. No, you know, they haven't adopted to our morality, so they're completely unjust. Makes, but that's kind of the mentality that some of them have allowed, which allows them to do this. You know, it's like, I'm the shaman, you know, I'm the king. And they can get very headstrong uh, if they're not good. You know, they can get very puffed up on their own, mm -hmm. their own self and their own self-importance because they are doing great things. But if they let that, if they lose their sense of humility, mm -hmm. uh, it can be a major issue. So, yeah, so if you don't have, you know, a resource that I pointed you in, I'd say talk to people who've been there and also definitely watch what's going on first. You know, unless you're completely 100% sure, you know, super, well, watch a few ceremonies that go down. Just be like, you know, would you mind if I join the ceremony quietly and watch? And if they say no, fuck them. Get out of there. You know, take your, take your business elsewhere. Um, but if you are going to do ayahuasca, you know, I have a couple excellent resources. If they're too busy or they can't work, um, you know, try and reach out to them anyways and see if they have a recommendation. You know, uh, both Javier Zavala and... Maestro Orlando Chuandama are both outstanding shamans, and they'll, they'll certainly be able to help you. So fortunately for the people listening here, you do have a good resource. I've been there. I've done it. I've known them, um, and you know, I've seen what they can do, and I have a lot of confidence in recommending them. Um, but you know, there's a lot of other things out there, and you're going to have to use everything you have. You have to use logic and intuition and you know, keen observation and a, and a sense of things to kind of figure it out. And if you do, it can be an amazingly powerful gift healing both physically and mentally and, and bringing back wisdoms that'll help help you for the rest of their life, like, like the wisdoms that I've brought. Um, you know, every single medicine I've done has given me something that's invaluable in my life. You know, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's, so that set me on the path. And then from there, you know, I have other podcasts and other things where I talk about my specific experiences. I don't think I'm going to go into too much of that from there. Uh, but one area I want to touch on is, um, you know, the career side of things, because that was, you know, I've kind of been focused on the philosophy side of things. But from a career standpoint, that was always something that was very challenging for me, because I had no idea what the fuck I wanted to do when I was in college. You know, I mean, I had an idea that I wanted to, A, make, make some good money, and B, help people, um, and and, and that was really the key two things that I was, that I wanted to focus on, you know, how am I going to make money and how am I going to do it in something that I enjoy? And that also is beneficial to people, you know, like if I could develop a new fucking cigarette, you know, that wasn't going to cut it. Yeah. Maybe I could make some money, but 
it's going to be hurting people. That didn't kind of sit with me. So, you know, I think the best advice to kind of keep in mind for that is um, work on honing your own skill set. Work on becoming impeccable as a person and being ready for opportunity, being ready for when you realize what that thing might be. Uh, so even if you don't know, you know, practice being great, you know, practice being successful. Um, take little projects and see them through to the end. So you practice completing projects, practice completing all these things. And, um, you know, I think that's what, that's basically what I did. You know, I started a marketing company after college and, um, you know, got to practice how to help companies be successful uh, when it wasn't my own dollars. And then also practice. I worked in some in investment banking stuff, helping raise money. So I got to practice raising money when it wasn't my business plan, you know, and just got to kind of feel out a bunch of different industries. Um, obviously, working for Fleshlight was, you know, a huge benefit and a, and a blessing because I was able to really kind of interact with a large customer base on, a, on an e-commerce level. Um, you know, certainly the product wasn't something that I was particularly enthusiastic about it, but I did see the, I did see the need for it and, uh, and it made sense. You know, and um, and so, but I always kind of had a had a keen eye that ultimately I wanted to to bring something better, something with a more positive message, something um, something that would help people, and something that could build uh, build kind of a, a little platform from which I could reach more people. And um, you know, three kind of things came together to make this possible. Um, one, I had the marketing background. Uh, the second thing was I had grown up. Uh, my stepmother was a, um, you know, pretty famous nutraceutical doctor. Had worked with the L.A. Lakers. Um, now works with the Miami Heat a little bit, and a bunch of pro athletes and celebrities. Ken Steff is the volleyball player. All these people were coming in and out, and so she was highly tuned to treating athletes with natural medicines. So myself, I was also getting a lot of the benefit of that as well. You know, if I was really sick and I wasn't able to play and it was a playoff game, you know, I got a B12 shot, <laughs> you know, ready for me uh, right in. And I could feel the results like, oh, snap, you know, B12. Holy shit, this stuff works. So I got to kind of feel what these vitamins and these different kind of foods, how they impacted myself. So I had a kind of an affinity for that um, as well. But then the, the final piece was, you know, meeting Joe Rogan and uh, becoming business, you know, um, you know, partners in business with him um, because he had not only very similar values to me. Uh, I, I mean, and then for, you know, for those of you who, you know, the relationship with me and Joe Rogan is something that's completely unique on a business level. Um, usually, even amongst business partners, you're somewhere in the 90% honest range if it's good. You know, but you fudge a little bit here and there. You fudge a little bit here and there. With Joe, it's not not the way it works. It's fucking straight up 100% all the time. And that's how we try to be in everything, with our customers, with that. And so because we see eye to eye on that, um, you know, it it just, it's easy. You know, it makes sense. And then, you know, he's help, able to help get the message out there. And we just tell it like it is as much as we can. And and we can all the time. There's really no reason where why you can't unless it's some kind of sensitive information or mm -hmm. some other weird situation but it's just this complete transparency complete honesty 
which is really unique and really cool. And so having a partner like that has been, you know, such an immense blessing, both for me personally and professionally. And so having all the three of those things come together, um, the key then was just to make the best fucking products we could. And we tested them out, tried everything we could. And, you know, we knew we were onto something with Alpha Brain early, even though the first we went through six or seven formulations before we got the first commercial batch. But we knew we had something good. And, um, and from there, we've just tried to keep it up and keep doing the best thing we could. I mean, I had some other supplements for on it prior to Rogan, but I almost consider that like a different business. You know, it got me to learn who to manufacture, what capsules to make, blah, 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 how some certain things worked. But really, the business fully began as on it when, uh, when Joe came on board. And then from there, expanding into, you know, into fitness and now expanding into functional foods. Um, you know, hopefully we're just going to be a real ally on, you know, I see on it as the ally on the physical level to help people on the physical level while, you know, warrior poet and everything that Rogan is doing and from a philosophical and spiritual level is going to help out as well. So, you know, it's almost, it's really, truly me getting to fulfill my dream of, of helping people and, you know, still building a bigger and bigger platform. You know, I mean, on it can take care of your physical needs to a large degree. Make sure that you're optimized with the nutrients you need, um, the fitness equipment that you need, um, not need or, or just need maybe is the wrong word, but that you could utilize, that could utilize as a tool in your bag to improve yourself, you know, to give yourself that plus three strength and plus three intelligence like you were a video game character. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, you know, everything I'm exploring on the psychedelic front and on, um, you know, with the warrior poet, just from the philosophy in general, uh, can help people live, you know, hopefully happier and more spiritually fulfilled. And, uh, you know, that's the fucking dream, you know, that's it. I mean, I, I feel incredibly blessed and, and it's not that things aren't challenging and that I walk around with a big smile on my face all the time because, you know, I have my own demons, you know, I have my own struggles. We have our own challenges. Um, but you just got to keep, you know, keep your backbone intact. Remember what's important to you, you know, truth, honesty, justice, um, and being, you know, being in line with, you know, the best logical action to take and, and you'll find your way out of the woods eventually, you know, no matter what it is, health challenge, physical challenge, business challenge, um, and then, uh, you know, just not forgetting to, uh, to enjoy, enjoy life as well in the struggle. I mean, it's easy to get caught up in the struggle. I have, a my first important tattoo, which I don't know if anybody's seen, we'll have another tattoo, tattoo exploration here, <laughs> but, um, yeah, you're probably not gonna be able to see this very well, but it's the samurai with the cherry blossom tree. And, um, the symbolism for that is the samurai to me represents um, the struggle and the fight and the desire. You know, samurai means to serve in Japanese and to serve a code, to, to live by a bushido, live by a code of honor. Um, and the cherry blossom tree represents, you know, to not forget about the transient beauty in life. You know, I mean, those are the two elements. Don't get so caught up in the struggle that you forget to, you know, enjoy the falling petals of the cherry blossom, which is kind of you know, to the Japanese culture was the embodiment of that, of that kind of philosophy. So that's, um, man, I've been all over the fucking place. Here. I know it's good though. It's <laughs> been good. all over the place, but I think, I think hopefully that gives kind of a, 
a little better picture of um, where I come from and kind of what makes me tick and, and what makes me who I am. I think it definitely does. Do you have any, uh, are there any other questions you saw from Twitter or anything that, um, yeah, there's so many more questions, but we don't, I mean, I know we're already past our time. Yeah. People can, people can hang out a little longer. This will be a special edition. We'll call it the 90 minute special edition. Let's say we got about another 10 minutes. Okay. Well, first what I want to touch on is go back. Um, you studied philosophy at the university of Richmond, Mm -hmm. but then you went into marketing. So what is that little gap? What happened in between right. graduation and starting your marketing company? Philosophy was a way to teach you how to think. And to me, that was that was what I could apply to any other field. Um, so I didn't know what I was going to do at that point. I had no clue, like literally no clue what I was going to do. I, I might have gone into finance. I might have gone into whatever else. Um, but I knew I knew how to think, and I knew I knew how to problem solve. So I knew I could apply that skill set to whatever particular information was necessary um, to succeed. I ended up applying that to marketing. And so that's relating to different people, um, you know, quantitative analysis of data, um, and then inspiration and creativity. And, and marketing for me kind of embodied a lot of those things. Um, the life of a writer was something I explored, but it's such a solitary life. Uh, it's, you know, you and your words and your books. And there'll be a time for that, but it wasn't that time. You know, I wanted to be out there in the world and doing things. Um, the finance world was just too boxed in, you know, too rigid. There was not enough room for creativity and exploration and brilliance. And it was more like, you know, you just grind your way, grind, 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 hours, hours, hours. You know, the people in New York working finance are busting their fucking asses. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for them doing that. But for me, that wasn't quite right either. So how could I do something that kind of utilize some of my skills and that I could apply my ability to think creatively and think, think like that. And, and marketing just seemed to be the way to do it. All right. That makes sense. What about the name change? Why Aubrey? So Aubrey was, uh, I was born, <laughs> this is the, the real, one of the main impetuses to this is not anything mystical. You know, people tag this to my experience in the jungle and it did coincide and that has some aspect to it. But I was born Michael Aubrey Christopher Marcus. That was my name on my birth certificate. So early on, though, everybody started calling me Chris because my father's name was Michael. Um, so, <laughs> so I had everybody calling me Chris. But then when I got my driver's license, it said Michael. When I got my credit cards, it said Michael. When I checked into a hotel, it was Michael. When I got a gym membership, it was Michael. So not always though, you know, some gym memberships, I'd be able to fill it out as Chris, you know, other things with Chris. So I had this kind of constant, am I Michael or am I Chris kind of, and it seems like nothing, right? But it's a little weird, you know, when you walk up to a counter and like, okay, sir, I'll look up at your account. What's your name? And you go, uh, <laughs> uh, Michael. And they're like, no, I'm sorry. We don't have it. Oh, I'm sorry. It's Chris. And they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> you a fucking crazy person. Yeah, what's wrong with you? Yeah. What's wrong with you? Don't you know your name, son? <laughs> Um, so I dealt with a don't you know your name, son, kind of look for forever. Um, so I, I wanted to remedy that at some point. I was like, look, this is bullshit. I'm tired of this. Uh, I'm tired of having you know to deal with this kind of nonsense. Um, and the name Aubrey was out of all those names. Um, you know, Michael was my father's name, and I just never really sat. You know, that was my father's name, and I'm not him. You know, and and, and I love him, and he's great, and I just don't. I just didn't want to be him, you know, so the Michael didn't make sense. I never knew my, 
my grandfather Aubrey, but I'd known a lot about him. He was my grandmother Bonnie, who's tattooed on me. It was her husband who died before I was born. Um, he was, you know, a top fencer in the in the army. Um, was a English scholar and a teacher. And you know, some of his favorite books, some of his Chaucer tales, and some of his other things have become my favorite books. And there's just a kind of weird spiritual affinity where you know I look at old pictures of him and I see my spirit in him and I'd always kind of seen that and um, so instead of you know just changing my name to Chris which really was kind of empty for me had didn't have any real meaning and I would have to go through the name change anyways um, I decided to go with my other middle name which was Aubrey and it just had a more meaningful kind of spiritual uh, feel to it and when I was in the jungle in Peru uh, taking the ayahuasca, it was a real death, death rebirth experience. Um, I feel like that was the time where I really shed so much of my lingering fears. And it wasn't a fear of death. As I said, I kind of conquered that fear initially, but I had an immense fear of suffering, which has grown back a little bit, but, <laughs> but I, I killed it for the most part when I was there and killed a lot of parts of my old identity, some vanities, some other things. Um, and so with that, you know, at that moment, I was like, all right, this is the moment where I make the switch. It's a clean break. You know, I had a death as Chris and I can be reborn as Aubrey and Aubrey epitomizing the best of what I want for myself. So that's the uh, that's the story <laughs> of the name change. It's been, you know, probably more of a pain in the ass than I even <laughs> expected. Um, it's just hard for people to change a name, you know, to change what they call you. But um has Most, that been a trouble with friends and family? Well, some people are stubborn. You know, they like won't adopt. And I'm like, what's your problem? <laughs> you know, and then most people are cool with it, though. It just seems to be like the older, the older the individual, the more, the more stubborn they are. They're stuck in their ways. They're stuck in their ways. They want to call me Chris, which I don't really care that much. But it is kind of more, obviously, a lot more respectful to call me by my real name, which is now fully legally changed. And it's. God, I can't say how cool it is now to be able to say, you know, when someone says, hey, what's your name from the fucking cell phone company or the bank or whatever? I'm like, Aubrey Michael Marcus. <laughs> like, I know that shit. <laughs> I know it now. I know it now. So that's been a real blessing. But um, I'm glad I did it. haven't regretted it for a, for a minute ever since I did. It means more to me and it's solved a lot of practical, <laughs> practical worrisome issues. Well, good, good. I'm glad that you've been reborn as Aubrey. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> you can That's identify it. with it now instead of going back and forth. Yeah, exactly. Is there anything you think we missed? Anything you want to touch on? Oh, man. We were so all over the place. I think... Um, let me look back and see. I think... Uh, I think that's largely it, you know, I mean, I think a lot of these other things I've explored on The Warrior Poet and certain ideas and concepts I'll touch, can keep touching on in other podcasts, but this gives a good idea of of who I am and, and a little bit more about me, and I think that's been, you know, what uh, what I've gotten some requests for, and hopefully I've done a pretty decent job of, of explaining that. I'm sure when I get off here, I'll be like, oh, that was an important thing. I guess if I had to say, oh, there were some lessons, there were some lessons learned that I would like to say. So in college, I was incredibly troubled by what I was going to become and what I was going to be, and troubled to the point where it was almost depressing. 
you know, like I would get really sad. I was like, what am I doing with myself? Why? Um, and looking back, you know, it all worked out, you know, and it didn't work out because I was worried about it. It worked out because I was, you know, because I was, I wasn't ready to be the CEO of On It then or the spokesperson of Warrior Poet, you know. I wasn't the person who could be that. And that I had to change first. I had to grow. I had to evolve. And so, you know, if you're stuck in that position where you're worried about, oh, what am I going to be? What am I going to do? What's my plans? Work, you know, just trust that if you're growing and if you're getting better, you know, the, the path will illuminate itself. And I didn't have that trust then. I thought I had to fucking figure it out and hammer it out. And every time I didn't do it, I was bummed out. So, you know, whereas I could have been, you know, a lot more in the moment and enjoyed myself a lot more. It doesn't mean don't work hard, but it just means take some of that pressure off, you know, if you can. And just trust that, you know, focus on improving yourself, pro- focus on being better yourself, and, and the rest will come. And that was an important lesson that I would apply if I could look back. Kind of enjoy the journey. Enjoy the journey, yeah. And just trust that, you know, as awesome as you think you are, you know, have the humility to know that you're not quite ready yet. You could be better. And I even know that now. I mean, people ask me, Aubrey, when are you going to write a book? I will, but I want to be better when I write that book. You know, I want to be more ready, be more um, wiser, you know, have, learn, have more knowledge, have more experience. And, uh, you know, hopefully, I think you can apply that to the same thing, you know, a certain sense of humility and a certain sense of self-improvement. You know, and it doesn't mean delay it forever. Oh, I'm not ready yet. Oh, I'm not ready yet. At a certain point, you gotta you gotta ship it, like Stephen Pressfield said. You just gotta fucking go, and um, and you'll know when that is too. But also, you know, if you're still preparing, um, don't get too bent out of shape about that. And then, yeah, I think that's that's one of the key lessons that I would, if I look back on my life, and also take care of your health early. You know, I've had um, I've had my own different struggles from stupid things I've done. I mean, I was. I always had a good sense of balance, but I was also always able to handle intoxicants really well. And I had three older brothers. So, you know, I was, you know, when I would party in high school, I would, you know, I never drunk and drive because I knew the risks of that and I saw the dangers. Um, But when I was in a safe place, I would get ripped. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I did that through college and and that's fine. And there's a time and a place for that. Um, But you know, for me, when I was working out that hard and, and partying still hard, I put so much of a strain on my body, I ended up getting a, that kind of a form of, 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 uh, of mono called Epstein-Barr, which is pretty common. But it's something that's like, it's a, it's a weight that's still on me that, you know, you never get to lift. It's one of those things that never goes away. It doesn't transmit or anything, but it's like a constant weight on your immune system. Um, and other things that I've done... You know, I would get sick and I'd have to take a bunch of antibiotics um, and that would, you know, that messed up the probiotic ratio in my gut. So even if you're young, even if you feel like fucking strong, like bull and like a young buck, you know, have a little keen sense for your health because it's all adding up to a cumulative kind of total. So don't push it too hard. You and know? even if you, I mean, if you are older and you've done that to your body and partied hard, it's never too late to start. Might be a little harder, but get started now. Exactly. And that's another thing, too. If I had to say another lesson learned is some part of you thinks, oh, it's too late. I should have done that already. You know, I'm too old for that. Oh, it's too late. In every aspect of life. Every aspect. And that's just a bullshit rationalization. It's never too late. You know, 
you can start whenever the fuck you want. I mean, Stephen Pressfield's another great example of that, where he turned professional as an author, you know, way into his adulthood. Um, in his 30s, that's when he started first publishing. You know, you would think, oh, I'm too old to be an author, or whatever it is. But whatever it is, your health, your love life, your, um, your career, you're, it's not too late. Don't let that be an excuse. You know, don't think I should have got started early. You know, doesn't matter whatever the fuck it is. You know, go after it. You know, but you know, be reasonable. All right. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you're trying to, if you're trying to be a, you know, skincare teen model and you're 40, you know, <laughs> might be a little gonna, difficult. Might be a little difficult. So you know, don't beat your head against the wall. That's not going to get broken. But don't let that be a crutch. You know, don't let that be an excuse. I think that's another important thing. As Keep far as moving forward and looking into the future, what what do we have to expect from you when it comes to Warrior Poet or anything like that? <coughs> what do you have yeah. for us? <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to get, I want to basically hone in a bit more on what these medicines do, what their benefits are, um, find resources for people to legally take them because... You know, as much as I praise, um, as much as I praise the benefits of certain things, um, I do also respect that it's important to have a good sitter or a shaman, um, which generally comes from indigenous settings. And you also, I don't like having the pressure and the concern and the risk of, you know, the government throwing you in a fucking cage for doing this, you know. So exploring kind of indigenous options for, for these things, hopefully the laws change in our time. Uh, but also kind of illuminating what kind of legal medicines, legal options that are going to be there. I'm going to be focused probably a bit more on um, some breathing, shamanic breathing techniques and other ways to kind of break you out of your uh, patterns of thinking that are, that are legal and provide more solutions rather than just stories. So I think the way Warrior Poet's going to go is, yes, I'm going to be bringing back wisdom, but I'm really going to try and push forward with some more you know, solutions like, hey, guys, this is a routine that I got. You know, you can get these herbs from here and you can breathe in this manner and do it this way, listening to this music. Give it a fucking shot. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So I think more practical approaches to Warrior Poet are coming. Um, you know, the amount of content of information that I keep getting when I go over to the other side, a lot of it is reiteration. So these crazy stories like the initial story from Peru and the initial Aboga story, they're going to be diminishing just by nature. There's not that much truth that's out there, and truth doesn't change if it's actually truth. Mm -hmm. So while there'll be little tidbits, like the story about the dragon and the bear and the eagle I told last time, that was a tidbit compared to what I got from the last time. It was a fraction. And so the next time I do it will be a fraction thereof, and then the next time is a fraction thereof. Same with the boga. I don't expect the same amount of content to come out the next time I do that. But I will keep trying these different things, keep kind of exploring that, but... Really getting practical, I think, is what I'm going to be focused on. And, and even creating different um, little hands-on experiences where we can take a group out um, either here uh, in the States with some legal options um, or out in other countries where other medicines are legal and leading some kind of guided tours and guided experiences and almost creating a, a certain brother sisterhood of of people who've kind of i don't know those are kind of ideas that are initially forming is the kind of you know let's go on this journey together let's 
let's build these bonds, let's learn, let's go through these mutual hardships and explorations and things like that. And then you go out and be your own little warrior poet, you know, almost like a, a warrior poet training school mm-hmm. sort. So there's some thoughts of that. And obviously a lot more details need to come into play, but it's the future is going to start getting practical, you know, more than anything. I also have some cool videos that I'm going to be making um, similar to what Jason Silva was doing with his short videos, but obviously warrior poet themed. Uh, those aren't too far out. And, um, you know, I think that's that's a lot of it. And then ultimately, um, I'm going to write a book similar to what Aldous Huxley did in his book, The Island, which kind of combines all of the wisdom that I've gotten. Uh, but that book's a couple years away. Um, and, uh, you know, that's it. I think, you know, a couple of the little projects, uh, poetry anthology I'm going to finally come out with of all my years of poetic anguish and mm-hmm. <laughs> romantic and uh, <laughs> misadventures. <laughs> um, so some few more personal things will come out, but that's kind of the future there. And um, the future with Onnit is just, you know, more of the same, better products, new products, new foods, power, you know, power foods that can help you out in the line of hemp force. And uh, we're making some bars now too. And, um, and then fitness equipment coming out with some cool stuff and some, old school but cutting edge kind of kind of vibe that you don't need to go to a health club to do um you know you can build up your own home garage and and be a savage like uh like joe rogan himself right (laughs) or many of the other fans and customers that uh that we have out there so well good we have a lot to look forward to then we do do. you're a busy man i am and and i feel like i owe it you know i owe it to to everybody out there and more and more so i mean this last the last incident where we had that security breach was i mean such a amazingly humbling experience for me because you know i i feel like you know i was i was robbed while people were guests in my home and that's you know even if i couldn't have prevented it or however you know fbi is working on how this happened and whatever um it still happened in my home on my watch and uh and the way that everybody responded to that and was supportive and yeah, you know, some people were upset and some people cursed at us and, you know, but overwhelmingly people were humble and cool and responded in such a positive way that, you know, I, it inspires me. And, uh, it, and I feel like not only do I want to work harder and want to bring more, but you know, it's my duty, you know, I owe it, I owe it to these customers and these fans and, and everybody to, to do my best to bring that to them. You know, anything less would be, um, just wouldn't be right. You know, I mean, they've, um, cumulatively what they've given me, you know, I got to work my ass off to give it back because all these guys have been unbelievable. So, um, and you wouldn't be where you are today without them. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I wouldn't be where I'm going without Mm -hmm. them too, because it's easy to lose faith and it's easy to say, ah, who cares? Let's just relax and not worry about it. But I know, you know, there's people out there hungry, hungry for things to improve their life, both, you know, words, knowledge, um, products, foods, everything, you know, fitness stuff. Uh, People are hungry to get better. And if I have an opportunity to do that and I'm sitting on my ass, I'm, I'm missing the boat. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, my one regret of this uh, this podcast here is we haven't got to delve into your 
fine brain as well, but perhaps another <laughs> time on the Warrior Poet Experience, we'll turn the tables and uh, I'll do a little less <laughs> of the talking and more of the asking, and we'll, we'll find out what's made you the remarkable woman that you are and, uh, and give that perspective as well. One day, one day. <laughs> one day, you'll let <laughs> you me know. You can never find me again. <laughs> one day, you'll let me know when you're ready. Well, right. I'm glad that um, you really opened yourself up to everybody and yeah. didn't really hold anything back. Yeah, I hope not. I don't. I don't think I did. <laughs> I don't think I did. So hopefully, uh, hopefully people dig it. I certainly went over my allotted time, but I guess uh, to compress thirty-one years into an hour forty minutes is reasonable. So right. <laughs> so right. we'll live with that. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in to the Warrior Poet Project. This is podcast number eight, a unique podcast exploration of uh, yours truly. So. Thanks for tuning in. Much love. And uh, we'll be back to our regular programming (laughs) hopefully sometime soon. So adios for now.